Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge uh, again, whether you're watching online out at Webster or at Rochester campus. If you're still filling out that survey, please feel free to finish it, get that finished up. That really does help us serve and uh, shepherd our families and individuals the best way we can to learn more about you and how we can better uh, serve you. Well, welcome home. My name is Daniel. I get the honor and privilege of teaching God's word today. We're in week five of a series in the book of Revelation called Revelation. And if it's your very first time, you may feel like, oh, what in the world are they talking about? But uh, trust me, you can go back on our YouTube page, church website, podcast to catch up where we've been thus far. Um, and there's also a study guide for you there on iwan.info for, for some additional resources if you want to dive into any of those. And we know that this series is bound to bring up some questions about the book or if you're reading the reading plan along with us before we teach these messages that you are bound to have some questions, you can actually still submit some uh, questions about the book of Revelation or different verses we cover there on iwant.info as well. And those will be answered on our weekly podcast, A Little Better, that releases every Tuesday. Well, I want to start off this morning, before we dive into this passage, a little different. I want each of us, this is another all play, okay, uh, to put a hand over your own heart, your own hand on your own heart, with the goal of you just feeling your heartbeat. You may have to settle, you know, stop talking to your neighbor, whatever you need to be doing here. Uh, put your phone, coffee down, just put your hand over your heart, two hands if you want to, and your goal is to feel your heartbeat. If you can't feel your heartbeat, it, maybe raise your hand and ask for a nurse around you. I'm not sure. Uh, but just feel your heartbeat. All right, feel your heartbeat. Okay, feel it in. And I want you to take two big, deep breaths in and out, but as I guide you. So deep breath in and out. One more time. In and out. Okay. What I wanted everyone to acknowledge there, doing that exercise with me, is that I, like you, are humans. I don't know if you knew that or not, but congratulations. We learned something new today. Uh, but no, for real though, I wanted you to acknowledge the fact that you are human. Because I know if you're anything like me, you spend a lot of your time in your life like distracting yourself from the fact that you're human because the fact that you're human means you have limitations. Like for me, I know that it, I distract myself every, uh, every day at 1.30 with a, another cup of coffee to have some more energy to get through the day because I don't like the fact that I'm out of energy and it's only 1.30. I'm like, this should not be the case. I have a lot more of the day to cover. I got two little kids at home that I'm gonna have to play with and then put to bed. It's like, it's a, there's a lot of day left and night that I'm gonna have to be awake for and I'm already tired and it's 1.30. This should not be I need more caffeine or energy for you. That may be Mountain Dew or, you know, caffeine patch, whatever works for you, right? Uh, and some of you are thinking, man, he makes it till 1.30? That's impressive. Um, the second thing is this, is all the technological apps and product productivity tools that I use and engage in, like Google Calendar, to-do list, I need to be more productive to get more done because I don't like the fact that I have limitations and all these other things. Right? And the third one is this, is I, I like to stay pretty physically active, play uh, sports with some guys, still basketball, and, and I'm always shocked at the fact that I don't jump as high, run as fast, or play as well as I used to. I'm like, why am I still not like fit enough like I was when I was 17, a junior in high school, playing in the state semis? Like, what the heck? What is this? And there's always somebody better, quicker, faster, and I'm always sucking wind because I have asthma. It's like, what is the problem? I do not like this. And, uh, and so it's just the case. Like I have limitations. If my heart wasn't beating when I felt it, I was making sure every service, I've made sure that it's still there, right? Because I wouldn't be. If I didn't have breath in my lungs, I wouldn't be. 
And this is all fun and games to play with, but, but the reality of acknowledging that we're human, we need to do, because to be human is to have limitations, to be human is to not be God. And this passage that we're gonna dive into in the book of Revelation, we have to know that out of the gate. Like we have to know out of the gate that we are not God, but there is a God. And we have to start with acknowledging that we're not that God. John Calvin said it like this, theologian, he said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. That you can't even know God if you don't first know some things about yourself. And we know that we have limitations and that we're not God. King David in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms chapter eight, he was looking out at creation and thinking about God. And this is what he says. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set into place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? David's like, when I look out of the vastness and the beauty that's in your creation, I think to my mind, what is mankind? What are humans, God, that you even give them careful thought or remember them? That's what that word mindful means. And the way that God has cared for us and remembered us are countless if we went around this room and rooms across our campuses to ask the question, like, how has God cared for you? We would not be able to uh, keep up with the list. And just thinking about two examples in the Bible, in the scriptures, that we look at the Old Testament of how God cared for his believers in the book of Exodus by saving them from slavery from Egypt. He cared for them. He remembered them, the scripture says. In the New Testament, we see the cross where he sent his one and only son to die on behalf of of sinful humanity for all those who would come to him. He cared, he remembered, he didn't forget about us. And the ways that God continues to work in our lives to make us more like him. He doesn't just save us and forget us. He always is caring for and remembering us. We have to remember this as we approach this text this morning. That we need to learn that all of these ways that God has cared for us should lead us to trust him to trust him with our immediate, our future next couple of weeks, and ultimately how he's gonna deal with evil in the end. Two weeks ago, I wanna take you back two weeks in our series. Two weeks ago, Drew taught about uh, the throne room, and, and we learned about all the things that are tied to the throne and heaven and God. And, and we learned that before, in this passage in chapter four, that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, wept at the fact that there was no one found who could control the events of history and ultimately unfold God's plan. And then there was one found, who was Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then a new song broke out in response in all of heaven. They worshiped Jesus, the one who sits on the throne. And in Revelation 5.10, it says that this Jesus, you have made them to be, them being the people God is redeeming and making for himself, them to be a kingdom of priests to serve God and they will reign on the earth. They will reign with God. The one who is in control is making for himself a people to reign with him. And then last week, we saw those seven seals being opened, and as evil comes into the world, God's wrath began to be poured out on the world. And the scene ended with silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And this section that we opened last week is what Drew uh, unpacked and other theologians called the Great Tribulation, chapters 6 through 18 of the book of Revelation. And we defined it like this, a time period where God pours out his wrath on the world and evil. 
And you may have the question like, why does this have to happen? Like, why must this take place? And I would say this, simple. If 510 is going to happen, that God is making him a kingdom of priests to reign on the earth, he's got to take care of evil first. I want to point to you where we're at in this before we dive in to this book. We, we broke down the book of Revelation like this. You can see it behind me on the screen. There's three major movements, and we're in the second major movement, and then the second sub-bullet of chapters 8 through 10, which is our next movement of trumpets, the seven trumpets of judgment. And you may have this question. Multiple questions have came into us of like, how's this all going to happen? Like the great tribulation, these chapters from eight to about, or six to about 18, uh, this great tribulation, how is this going to unfold? Like when we think about time, like is how many years, what's the order of these events? Like these questions. I want to give you three quick views of the happenings of the Great Tribulation. So the first one is called the simultaneous view, meaning that when we look at the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, they're all actually just talking about the same unit of time, and John is describing it in different ways. That's the first view. Uh, one illustration has been given that imagine John is walking around the outside of your house, and he looks in different windows and different rooms, and then he writes down and describes what he sees, but he's actually just looking at the same house. He, he's, he's, that's the first view, simultaneous. So they're all happening, same unit of time, and he's just describing them in different ways. The second view is called the consecutive view, that the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls are one after the other, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, next set of seven, next set of seven. Um, and Ultimately, some theologians go to the extent of saying that each one is one year. So year one is the first trumpet, year two is the next trumpet, and etc. with the seals, trumpets, and bowls. So that would equal up 21, right? And the last one is, I'm calling it, different theologians have called it different things, but the telescopic view. And uh, imagine with me a set of Russian nesting dolls. This is helpful to keep in your mind while, while I'm explaining this, because this one's really hard to explain with words, okay? So the first six trumpets happen, or the first six seals happen, rather, that's the first set, and then when the seventh one hits, open the nesting doll, and out comes the seven trumpets. There's six that come, and then when the seventh trumpet hits, open the next nesting doll, here come the bowls, okay? So the seventh offsets the next set of judgment and trumpet. So that would mean that the seven trumpets uh, come from the seven seals, and the seven bowls come from the seven trumpets, and since the trumpets were inside the seals, that comes, ultimately the bowls would come from the trumpets and the seals. That makes sense? So Because they were packed inside there. So they all are connected together, but then they're un they're getting unpacked, okay? That's what they are. Those are the views. And now you're like, all right, tell me which one's right. Not gonna do that, all right? Uh, because I don't know if anybody really knows. I don't know, I don't even think that's the point. The point is, is this. God's judgment on evil and sin is going to happen. All these theologians debate on how it's gonna happen, but the point is still the same. It's going to happen. And in this section in Revelation, what it is revealing is these trumpets are a window into God's mercy. And I want to point this out through these few uh, chapters of Scripture. But we need to get a few things straight because some of us, we hate that word. We hate that word judgment. We don't like thinking about God and his wrath. We, we don't like that because that's the Old Testament God. That's not the New Testament God of love. 
But we got to get at least three things straight that they're not in your notes, but you can write them down if you want to. Number one, we got to get straight who receives the wrath of God. And it's those who are specifically have not repented from their sins and turned to Jesus. Believers don't get the wrath of God because that's what Jesus took on their behalf. Number two, we need to correct our view of God the Father. Some of us think he's wrathful, grumpy old guy who has a bloodlust that must be satisfied. That's why he killed Jesus, because he was so grumpy and, and mean and, and he had such this bloodlust that he had to satisfy that, so he had to kill his own son in order to do that. And we forget Jesus said this, anyone who has seen me, that's Jesus, has seen the Father. Because the heart of our God is one that is pure, holy, filled with mercy and justice. And he's the only one who can execute it correctly. And we need to get that straight now that we're diving in, okay? The background of these seven trumpets and the entire book of Revelation is the Old Testament. We've, we've learned that. We've covered that every single week. But there's two specific passages that are in the backdrop of these seven trumpets. And if you listen fast... All right, you'll catch them, all right? And the two passages specifically are the Genesis chapters one and two and the 10 plagues in the book of Exodus. And the 10 plagues, I wanna set this backdrop that God, through, I'm making this claim, God, through the whole scriptures, Genesis Revelation, is bringing about his salvation through the act of judgment. And I wanna show you quickly before we dive in. Exodus 7, 5. Before God does any plagues, he tells them why he's going to do it. He says this, and the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. He says the purpose is that every person will know that I am God and they're not, and I'm going to save my people. For that. That's the reason. And then right before he does the last plague, which is the plague of death, he says in Exodus chapter 11, this is how this is all going to go down. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than ever has been before and ever will be again. Among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Remember who gets the wrath of God? Those who don't follow God. Those who don't worship God. Even though they may be present on the earth during it, they don't receive it. And the question you have to answer is, does God actually accomplish his purposes? Yes, remember, he said, I'm going to let everyone know that I'm God and there is no other. And if they want to follow me, they can, and they do at the end. Exodus chapter 12, when they're exiting the land of slavery, um, in Exodus chapter 12, he says, he tells us how many Israelite men, women, and children are present. And then there's this little fragmented verse right here. And many other people went up with them. That means there were other people in the land of slavery, in the land of Egypt, who weren't Israelites, men, women, or children, but they made the decision to follow them. So God accomplished his purpose of bringing about salvation through the act of judgment, and he's done it from beginning to end, and I want to show you how he does it in Revelation chapter 8 through 11. Chapter 8, verse 6, the very first thing that happens is the angels prepare to blow the trumpets. At Revelation 8, 2, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets who were given to them. Revelation 8, 6, uh, it says this, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. Now, I wanted to do like Drew in a couple weeks ago who had the nice throne. I was going to bring out a trumpet, play the song that I think, but nobody wants to hear a goose die, right? That would be awful. All right. 
So, but this, what are these trumpets? So the, these trumpets are a signal of the coming wrath or judgment of God on the world and evil. They're a signal. They're like trumpet sounds. And then if anybody you want to make your own trumpet sound, you can do that in the privacy of your own uh, ears, but don't do that for us. Uh, trumpet sounds, and then here it comes. Let's walk through these. First trumpet. A third of the earth is burned up in verse 7 from hail, fire, and blood on the land. There's a backdrop here of plague 7 in Exodus where the exact same thing happens. And this is a, a reversal of day 3 of creation. In day three of creation, God creates plants and trees on the earth, and here we see him destroying them. Second trumpet, a third of the sea gets turned to blood in verses eight and nine from a burning mountain getting thrown into the sea. Plague one in the book of Exodus, water is turned to blood. Very same thing happens. And then day five in creation in Genesis one and two, God creates the living creatures in the sea, and here with the second trumpet, we see them being destroyed. Third trumpet, a third of the fresh water becomes bitter in verses 10 and 11 from a burning star that's named Wormwood that falls on the rivers and the springs. Plague one, the waters in Egypt are no longer drinkable. Decreation, we see in Genesis chapter 2 verses 6 and 10, they talk about the fresh springs that flow in the Garden of Egypt. And here, they're no longer usable in the book of Revelation. The fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are turned dark in verse 12. This mirrors plague nine of darkness in the book of Exodus and day four where God made the sun, moon, and stars and now he turns the light switch off of a third of them. And you may be asking a question like, why is God doing the exact opposite that he did in Genesis one and two? Well, I wanna remind you at the end of the book, the end of the story of the Bible, God makes a new heaven and a new earth. But in order to make it new and to redeem and restore it, he's got to rid it from evil. So he almost has to decreate and then renew it to be good and why the reason he originally intended and even better. But so that's why he's doing, I believe, what he is doing. But what I want you to notice in these first four trumpets is this that God has hindered the way of life for these people, but he has not destroyed them or ultimately their way of life. There's only a third, third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the fresh water, a third of the lights. He's hindered them, but he hasn't destroyed them. Why? It's a window of his mercy because there's an opportunity to turn to him. He wants to get their attention and say, wake up. You're not following me. Wake up, turn, wake up. And then he sends an eagle. Strangest thing happens. A big bird flies in the sky and talks. Okay, if any of those other things haven't got my attention yet, maybe this would, okay? (laughs) He says, eagle, this is what the eagle says. People of the earth, whoa, whoa, whoa. Four down, three to go. And I'm like, okay, I must have missed something. Because if I'm here on the earth now, I'm like, okay, this is a little weird. Because an eagle's talking to me. Must have been that bitter water. Like, like, <laughs> like he's, he get, he's trying to get their attention. He's like, turn, turn. It's about to get worse. But he says it in his eagle language, so it's a little hard to understand, must be. 
All right, fifth trumpet, fifth trumpet. Chapter nine, verses one through 12. Fifth trumpet, the army of hell gets released. And man, this army is so serious that I don't think my words, and I don't even know if John's word in the Bible get us all the way where they want us to be because the reason that he gives every single detail from verse one to 12 in chapter nine is to literally do one thing, fear. He wants fear to wash over you. He wants you to be utterly terrified because these are demonic beasts that are bent on terror. And the size of this army, if, it, if one of them would be worse, like if you saw one big bad dude, you're like, oh my gosh. But there are 200 million of them. This is the size of the population of the United States, four times larger than the size of Great Britain, twice the population of the country of Nigeria, and eight times larger than the population of Canada. This in the first century would nearly have represented the entire population of the world. And these, these beasts are meant on one thing. Their mission is one thing. They're instructed to not kill, but only torture. And these are who they're called to torture. Verse four. Only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember, who receives the wrath of God? Only those who are not following God, who have not turned from their sins and made Jesus the leader and forgiver of their life. And these people who are receiving this torture, this is what they long for. Verse six. During those days, people will seek death, but won't find it. They'll long to die, but death will elude or escape them. This teaches us that there's a death that's worse than death. And nothing in your power, if you're alive during this day and not following Jesus, is going to stop it. Not your own power, not your own diet, not your own strength, not your social media influence, not your 401k, won't even buy you death. All the prep and padding that you've done for your family to protect you in the day of trouble, worthless. Why? Why? Because it seems a lot more merciful for God to just kill these people than rather than torture them from the, by these beasts. Why? It's a window into his mercy because there's still an opportunity to turn and repent to come to him. He's trying to get their attention. Turn to me. But they don't. Sixth trumpet. Four angels are loose to kill a third of the world in verses 13 through 21 of Revelation chapter 9. This directly maps on top of the exact opposite of creation of day six where humankind is created and told to rule with God. And here we see four angels killing them. What I want you to notice in trumpets one through four and trumpet six, five of the seven trumpets, there's one number that happens again and again and again and again and again. One third. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, I hate fractions. <laughs> I became a pastor because I wasn't good at math, okay? But there's a lot of numbers, a lot of details, but one third. I'm no mathematician, but one third is not a whole. It's another window into God's mercy because he would have been just if he would have just done it all. 
Turn all the water bitter. Burn the whole earth. Kill every person because they're not following me. They don't want to turn and repent. Just kill them all. But God shows mercy. He doesn't kill them all because there's still an opportunity to repent, to turn from their sins. Yet, two-thirds of the people that are left don't give their attention to Jesus. Look at the text with me at the end of chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent from the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons or idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, or wood, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, their impurity, or their thefts. Still didn't turn. And this definitely parallels the book of Exodus, the hard heart of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who would not repent, would not turn away. The big question, again, is God going to handle evil? Is he going to handle it once and for all? Is he going to answer the prayers of the martyrs? How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? And I highly doubt that God is in heaven at this point saying, is a third good enough? Is that good for you? It's not. Wouldn't be good for me. My heart's impure, but... That's the question that still lingers underneath us is, is God going to handle it? But the most valuable thing that I want you to see is that the people who don't turn give away the most valuable thing they possess to the wrong thing. They give away their attention. Because this is the truth. Application point number one, if you're taking notes. What has your attention shows your level of trust in God. What gets in your brain and stays there? What are you giving your focus to every day? What are you filling your mind with? Because these people, it was right in front of them, but it never got their attention, not at least enough to turn from what they were doing to the God who desired to have their affection, to have their heart. And then after this, after we get this verse about them not repenting from their evil works, we get this interlude of a little scroll and two witnesses uh, in chapter 10 through part of chapter 11. And what I want you to remember is Drew taught us last week that at each series of seven, there's six and then there's a big interlude. And it's teaching us, it's this pause before the seventh thing happens. And this interlude, like I said, this strong angel shows up to John with this little scroll and instructs him, he says, eat it. And John does it. I mean, if a strong man showed up to you and said, eat a piece of paper, what would you do? Okay? And he says, eat it. And John says, he grabs it and he describes the scroll. He says, I did it. And it tasted like honey. I'm like, man, it, it must have been frosted flakes then, you know? It's like <laughs> sweet, flaky, see some things happening here. But John says, after I ate it, it was sweet like honey, but then it turned sour when it went in my stomach. And I was like, man, we've all had this meal. Sweet as honey going in, but once it got there, ugh, rough, okay, to say the least. And so as John is his sour stomach, and he's kind of been over probably in my, in my imagination, this angel looks at John, and he says this, verse 11, chapter 10, it says, then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. He says, John, you're not done yet. You're not done. Remember how old John is? He's in his 90s at this point. And basically this angel looks at John and he says, I don't care how old you are. If you're not dead, 
You're not done. If you're not dead, God's not done with you. Doesn't matter what your physical limitations may be. If you're not dead, God's not done with you. He wants you to do more. You have time, because there's a window, and people need to know about the window. And then John gets this in Revelation 11. I want to read a few verses here. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer courts. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days in sackcloth, clothed in sackcloth. That's a clothing of repentance or uh, lament. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stood before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire will come out of their mouths and devour their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have the power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague and as often as they want. And this all seems like weird, new, crazy stuff. But I want to tell you it's none of those things. It's actually all old stuff. And I'll show you how. Ezekiel 40, prophets are talked about with a measuring rod. The number of days is mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. Fire coming from prophets' mouths is 2 Kings chapter 1. Shutting up the sky by the prophets is 1 Kings chapter 17. Zechariah, the prophet, mentions two olive trees and two lampstands in chapter 4 of his book. In the Old Testament, uh, temple is mentioned, Daniel, by the Antichrist. The book of Matthew talks about the Antichrist. And 2 Thessalonians 2 also talks about what the Antichrist will do to the temple. This is not new. This is all old. The Bible has been talking about this from the very beginning, and yet these two prophets, get this, these two prophets are instructed to go and preach the gospel to people who still haven't turned and repented yet. And they're instructed to do this. Yet, yeah, you, you heard it here first, another window into God's mercy. And these are two literal prophets, but I believe this is also to be symbolic of what our witness, our church, and church as a whole is supposed to be in the world. A witness to the window, that there's still time to repent. But these prophets, after they prophesy for their 1,260 days, they're actually overcome, they're overtaken and killed by the beast, the Antichrist figure, which we'll talk in detail about Next week, I know that's what you're dying to hear, right? But where this beast overcomes or conquers these two witnesses, but what I want you to notice is in your reading in Revelation chapter 11 is what actually happens is the great reversal, what God is doing all throughout the Bible, that this beast overcomes these two witnesses and kills them, but three and a half days later, they conquer the beast. It gets reversed, what God has been doing all throughout scripture because they come back to life. And the word witness is actually what we get from our original word, which is the word martyr, or someone who has been killed for the cause they believe in, they've given their life for the sake of the cause. So application question number two, does your witness match your claimed trust in God? Because the reality is, is these two were raised for the glory of God and they overcame the beast by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. That they saw who was on the earth, 
and that they needed Jesus, and they were willing to do whatever it took to get the message to them, even if it cost them their life. And that's supposed to be our prophetic witness in the world today, preaching that there's still a window that God longs for all of his people, all people to worship him, to turn from their wickedness, to turn from their sin, and give their lives to him, to make Jesus the leader and forgiver of their lives. And would you believe it? That just like from Genesis all the way through, God accomplished his purposes. Because when those two witnesses are raised from the dead three and a half days later, and the breath of life bursts back into their lungs, a tenth of the city is shaken by this great earthquake, and 7,000 people are killed in the earthquake. But look at verse 13 of Revelation chapter 11. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. They turned and repented. They gave their life to Jesus. They believed in the gospel. They turned from their sin. They were terrified that God got their attention, that he accomplished his salvation through the act of judgment. That we may not like it, but he accomplished it in this way. And our witness is called to be, to share the gospel. That God has made a way for people who are broken and not worthy of a relationship with him to have one. If they would turn from their sins and cling to Jesus' completed work. And after these survivors give glory to God, after they turn and they repent and they worship God, trumpet number seven, the kingdom of God arrives on the earth. That since God has made that people to reign with him on the earth, it's now time to answer the call of the martyrs, to bring the kingdom. Their blood has been avenged. It's time. That it followed the prayer of the seven seals earlier to avenge their blood. It follows the prayer of Jesus, Lord, your kingdom come, and then the kingdom of God on earth arrives. Application point, last one. Does God's coming judgment bring you to repentance and trust? Have you, if you haven't already, turned from your sins and put your trust in Jesus? And these three application questions, God has been working on me in these for the past couple of weeks as I've been prepping this message of this big question, this simple yet profound yet dynamic question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? I was taught this in a strange way. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I and our family, our two boys, we went to Arkansas to visit some family and and we, were, we had arrived at my mother-in-law's house um, after being in a car for about 9 to 11 hours that day. And the day before, it was like 8 or 9 hours the day before being in the car trying to get there. And it's a long drive. And we have two young kids, both under the age of 2. Uh, and our oldest son, Wells, when we got to the house, it was like 9 o'clock in the afternoon, or at 9. And um, we were running around, and I was trying to get all the bags in and all these things. And... Uh, as you go on the back door of my mother-in-law's house, she has this set of stairs that are carpeted, that are pretty narrow, and Wells, he's almost two, he loves climbing stairs, and he was scurrying up and down these stairs, up and down these stairs. He was loving it, loving his life, and after I got all the bags in, and we're trying to get the boys, like, put uh, in the bath and bathe them, and then put them to bed so they won't be cranky the next day, and all this, and I'm trying to 
uh, Rena and her mom are in the living room with our youngest, and I'm trying to get Wells to go take him to give him a bath. And I'm like, Wells, come on, buddy. And we, we round the corner. He goes up the stairs. He scurries really faster than I do, and I've got the, all the bath stuff in my arms. And my foot hits that bottom step, and all I hear is, Dada! And I look up, and there he is at the top of the steps. And after he said that, Dada, those arms went out. Those feet went to the edge. It went way faster than this, but I'm just building suspense. <laughs> and then he jumped. And I dropped everything in my arms, and I took two or three big bounds, and I caught that boy. And I set him down, and we laughed, and we got over the bed, and we, went, we did our thing. And the next morning, we're going on a family walk, and I was telling Rena what had happened, because I sure didn't tell her that night. <laughs> <laughs> And I started crying when I was telling her the story. And, and she's like, it's okay, you caught him, he's, up, he's fine. I'm like, no, that's how I need to trust God. Because I was prepping after I did bath time and all that, I was prepping this talk. And then the next morning I woke up early and I was prepping this talk. And I was like, that's how I need to trust God. That I trust him enough to say, dada, and then jump. Because if he's good enough to be trusted with my eternity, then he's good enough to be trusted with my right now. And if he's good enough to be trusted with my right now and my eternity, then he's good enough to be trusted how he and he alone should decide to handle evil once and for all in our world. He and he alone is the one that should be trusted. So it lands us in a spot of like, do you trust God? Like, have you trusted him? Like, have you turned and put your faith in him to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life? And ultimately, if you're a follower of him, like, do you trust him? Like, dada, and then jump. Because there was zero fear in that boy's eyes. None. And for whatever reason, every day of my life, it's a battle. One thing after another. And it may be a million things that I could go through, but I won't. You know what it's in your mind. What are you struggling right now to trust God with? And ultimately, is this what you're struggling? To trust him with how he's going to handle evil. Because he's going to handle it. And our job is to trust him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we love you so much. Thank you for your word. And that you're good enough to be trusted. You're worthy. You're the only one worthy to be trusted. And our call is to be faithful to you right now, to be faithful. God, I pray for these people who are under the sound of my voice, wherever they may be, just to trust you with everything they are, to trust you. And may we live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.